Hello and welcome to the third episode of Rehab Roundup. My name is Jo and I'm a rehabilitation medicine trainee based in Leeds. Hi and I'm Juliet, I'm also a rehabilitation medicine trainee in Leeds. This month we're absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Lynn Turner-Stokes, Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine and Director of the Regional Hyperacute Regional Rehabilitation Unit at Northwick Park Hospital. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you very much. Uh, So just to say a bit more about what I do, my day job is, as you say, as consultant in rehabilitation medicine, Norfolk Park Hospital in London. Um, so clinically, I direct the regional hyperacute rehab unit. So level one hyperacute rehab unit. We take patients directly out of intensive care from all across London. So quite, quite clinically unstable patients. And then academically, I'm professor of rehabilitation medicine at King's College London. Thanks, Lynn. That's a really comprehensive uh, overview. Today, Lynn's going to be showcasing her work in neurological rehabilitation and specifically the rehabilitation and neuropalliation of patients who are in prolonged disorders of consciousness or PDOC resulting from catastrophic brain injuries. This is an extremely interesting but very challenging area of rehabilitation medicine and it's one which listeners might be surprised to learn can fall under the remit of rehabilitation medics. Lynn, are you able to tell us a little bit more about this area Uh, maybe how you got into it and and if you could clarify exactly what um, prolonged disorders of consciousness or PDOC means. Yes, so really essentially we're talking about what people generally call vegetative or minimally conscious states and as we get ever better at saving lives so we get better outcomes following injuries but we also rescue people who actually would have died at the scene of their injury. Some of those will have catastrophic brain injury um, and they may remain in prolonged disorders of consciousness or PDOC. For some, that will be a stage of recovery and they'll eventually improve. But for others, it can be permanent. So when we talk about vegetative state, we mean people are awake, but with no awareness of themselves or anybody around them. Minimally conscious state, they have some awareness of people and things around them, but it's inconsistent. And then when we say they've emerged into consciousness, that's what we mean is that they've actually recovered uh, the consistent interaction. They may be able to answer a simple autobiographical question, but it's still at quite a low level and they will still have profound physical, cognitive, communicative disability and very often require long term care in a nursing home. So I chair the National Clinical Guidelines for PDOC, um, which are published by the Royal College of Physicians in 2020. And that updates the previous version, which was 2013. And the guidelines make recommendations for assessment, diagnosis, the care pathway, really across the pathway from lifelong care from diagnosis through till death. Um, So in the early stages, we give all active treatment in the hope of a recovery. But the key questions we also have to address is what do we do in the longer term? How do we predict recovery? How do we manage family expectations for what that recovery will look like? Because importantly, not everybody would choose to continue to live if there's no realistic expectation of recovering a quality of life that they themselves would value. So how do we make those decisions when a patient can't tell us for themselves? How do we support clinical teams to listen and not just carry on treating by default just because they can? And then then what happens when when we've made that decision? So 
we start from the very strong presumption that it's in somebody's best interest to prolong life, but that presumption can be rebutted if there's evidence that the patient themselves wouldn't want it. So the guidelines also make very detailed recommendations about how to have best interest discussions, how to make decisions, and also details on end-of-life care where that becomes appropriate for patients. Great. Thanks, Lynn. That was a, a really helpful overview. Um, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must be for the friends and family of people who are going through this. Um, and I imagine that kind of questions about recovery do come up and you've begin, begun to talk about that already. Are you able to talk about kind of what sort of signs you're looking at to um, make that decision and w would guide your decision making? Yes. So actually, um things like the severity of the brain injury obviously are important but the most important thing is trajectory of change um, that is by far the strongest indicator of uh, prognosis for recovery so one of the things that we do is we look systematically for signs of improving awareness and responsiveness using validated uh, measures such as the wessex head injury matrix the wim or the coma recovery scale and we use those um, at, over time to monitor for changes um, and increasing signs of awareness. Um, but of course, also the cornerstone of uh, evaluation is detailed clinical evaluation by people with experience in prolonged disorders of consciousness. So one of the things that we've got now is we've recently had a change in the law, which has really improved our understanding of how we uh, apply the Mental Capacity Act 2005. The key question that we have to think about is not whether somebody's going to regain consciousness, but whether they'll regain a quality of life that they would value, which is a much more variable thing and people have very different views about what they might want. The other key thing is we've learned that it's the giving, not the withdrawing of treatment that has, has to be justified. So just because you can do something doesn't say you should. Um, and that means to say that there's a legal requirement on all of us to conduct formal best interest discussions really from quite an early stage in the recovery pathway because we're not just talking about clinically assisted nutrition hydration we're talking about any type of treatment that we give uh, to um, patients and any escalations such as CPR and so on but coming back to the um, CANH the clinically assisted nutrition hydration or tube feeding um, the key change in the law is that there's no longer a need to go to court if you want to stop tube feeding in somebody who's in PDUNC, so long as all parties are in, in agreement and the guidelines have been followed, which includes having appropriate external scrutiny, second opinion from an independent consultant who's an expert physician in PDOC, um, best interest discussions have been carefully conducted involving all the relevant family and friends and it's all been properly documented. So if we have got that agreement and we have followed the guidelines and it does become apparent that the person wouldn't want to continue tube feeding, then we have to think about the practical management of end-of-life care. And I think really this is one of the hardest things that a clinician has to do. We're all programmed to save lives um, and to continue treating and it's really hard sometimes to make that decision to stop. And it's actually hard to change from you know, not prescribing tube feeding and actually concentrate on the 
uh, end of life care and clearly we give sedation and uh, analgesia to make sure that the person isn't experiencing um, symptoms in the at the end of their life um, but it's something that we've we've worked on hard in the guidelines to give people that clear um, protocol and how to manage that and I'm very fortunate in King's to work with the Cicely Saunders Institute which is actually the first dedicated institute of palliative care and rehabilitation in the world um, and so we've been able to apply the palliative care skills that come from my colleagues uh, down there who contributed to the guidelines to help us really devise um, pro appropriate palliative care protocols for managing this group of patients. Thanks, Lynn. That's a, a really fantastic and comprehensive overview. Um, I particularly like the point you made about, you know, it's not just the withdrawing of care that needs to be justified, but also giving of, of care and treatment. And I think that sums up the, the ethical issues that you face really well. One of the points that we try to emphasise on this podcast is a very strong multidisciplinary team working, which is involved in rehabilitation medicine. I wondered if you could describe some of the different professionals you work with and also what unique skills you feel that rehabilitation medics offer when managing these very complex cases. Yeah, um, well, this is an area where we need a, a wide range of disciplines involved. Uh, we need physios and OTs to help position the patient, um, make sure that they're comfortable. If they're in discomfort, they're not going to be able to have an opportunity to respond, uh, provide an appropriate stimulation um, program and provide that expertise in looking for those often very subtle uh, signs. Um, and we have to remember that also some patients with severe brain injury can be aphasic, for example, so they are unable to understand language. Um, or communicate using language, may be able to under, not understand commands um, because they, they've got comprehensive um, problems. They may also be blind if they've got cortical, uh, occipital cortical damage, or they may be deaf, um, and there may be a combination of all those. So we've got to be very aware when we're assessing somebody of all of the impairments that they may have that might stop them being able to um, interact with us. Um, of course, we rely on the dietetic team to optimise nutrition and hydration and their general sort of well-being while we're trying to um, go through all of this. And um, the nursing care, um, managing tracheostomies and um, and so on. So on top of that, what do we bring? Very important question. Um, we do bring unique skills because although the team has all of those wonderful management skills, we bring the opportunity to pull together the diagnosis to interpret the findings as they're coming through um, and in particular to prognosticate taking into account the type of the brain injury the severity the location uh, of it and looking at what might be the chance for recovery because when we're talking to families we sometimes need to break bad news about what is likely to be the outcome and we have to paint for the family what might be the best scenario best case scenario for recovery what would be the worst case um, because when we're doing best interest discussions in order to get the family's feedback on what the person would want we have to paint that picture for them so we have a an important role uh, there as well as of course in you know managing the sort of medical problems trying to stabilize people and all the standard things that you would um, you would expect us to to do so it, it really is very much a multidisciplinary team effort
As well as working clinically, you've uh, been a real tra trailblazer in the region of um, re academic rehabilitation medicine. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and give any tips for any students or doctors who might be listening and might be interested in being involved in rehabilitation medicine research. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so I was very fortunate to start out my academic career with a doctorate funded by the Wellcome Trust, uh, which is where I caught the research bug, I think I'd say. Um, it was a actually a lab-based uh, scientific research in immunology that I did. I was looking at the response to influenza vaccination in patients with systemic lupus. Um, uh, at the end of which I, I found that I never wanted to look another lymphocyte in the eye. Um, and so as I went back into clinical work, I was focused my efforts on more practical clinical research. I'm particularly interested in research woven into real life clinical practice. Um, I think the other thing that I was fortunate, I started my career as a flying doctor in Australia um, and I've taken every opportunity to go back. So I've been fortunate to have adjunct chairs in Perth and in Auckland and also research projects in uh, Melbourne and in uh, Wollongong, uh, which has allowed me to combine my uh, research with my passion for scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef, apart from anything else. <laughs> um, so uh, I think what I would say for people who aspire to research, it's, it can be a wonderful uh, life. Uh, combining research with clinical practice, it can be quite hard because the university wants you to be a full-time researcher and the NHS wants you to be a full-time clinician, so you end up working very hard. Uh, but actually, it's it's huge fun and you get to travel and you get to see the world. Um, uh, so the main theme of my research has been health services research and re rehabilitation. And so we founded and I now direct the uh, UK Rehabilitation Outcomes Collaborative. So we have the National Clinical Database for Specialist Rehabilitation and we collect therefore systematic data on rehabilitation needs, the inputs provided to meet those needs and the outcomes for all patients admitted to level one and two rehabilitation units in England. And that's been really quite important because we've been able to demonstrate not only the effectiveness, but the cost efficiency of rehabilitation for patients with really complex disability, severely dependent patients, and show that actually that group can be the most most cost efficient to treat. Um, and that's been important because actually in other parts of the world, people with those very profound disabilities just simply wouldn't have access to rehabilitation because it wouldn't be thought, thought that they would make progress. So by developing the tools we have and the wonderful support we've had from all of the clinicians um, in rehabilitation medicine in the country who provide the uh, data and have done that very well, it's enabled us to really get powerful information that uh, says that we, we, we need to manage patients and, and provide rehabilitation for that complex group. And that's generated an awful lot of interest um, in other systems uh, around the world. So um, I get to go around and talk about it, which I love. Great. I mean, you've definitely sold research to me there, Lynn. Um, I suppose the million dollar question is, if you had your time again, would you still choose rehabilitation medicine? Absolutely. Oh, well, that's that's great to hear. I'm glad you said that, Lynn. Um, so thanks so much, Lynn, for giving up your time and joining us this episode. I think you've provided such a great in insight into a very, very fascinating and complex area of rehabilitation medicine. Juliet, who's joining us next time? Yes, we're welcoming Simon Shaw. He's a consultant in rehabilitation medicine at Guy's and St Thomas's, who specialises in amputee rehabilitation. And so that should be really interesting to hear a bit more about that.
If you can't wait until then, do feel free to tweet us on at RehabRoundup1 or email us at RehabRoundup at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts on the podcast so far and to request any upcoming topics. Bye for now.